Hello, my darling, and welcome to today's story time. We began the story of Don Quixote several years ago, and I deeply apologize that this happens on my channel. As a new ASM artist back then, I was not prepared for continuing through projects, especially when I didn't get very much feedback at all, so that really hindered things. But now I am prepared to get us through every book that you darlings desire. And I've decided to restart Don Quixote and give you chapters one through three in one file. Because I wanted to add the background atmosphere of this warming, crackling fire. But also because everything I've recorded with since Don Quixote has changed drastically, and I don't want to try to match what was there before. Now, please enjoy the fire. Lay back, close your eyes, and let me read you to sleep. And now, on with our story time. Chapter 1 which treats of the character and pursuits of the famous gentleman, Don Quixote of La Mancha. In the village of La Mancha, the name of which I have no desire to call to mind, there lived not long since one of those gentlemen that keep a lance in a lance rack, an old buckler, a lean hack, and a greyhound for coursing. An olla of rather more beef than mutton. A salad on most nights. Scraps on Saturdays. Lentils on Fridays. And a pigeon or so extra on Sundays. Made away with three quarters of his income. The rest of it went into a doublet of fine cloth. And velvet breeches and shoes to match for holidays, while on weekdays he made a brave figure in his best homespun. He had in his house a housekeeper past forty, a niece under twenty, and a lad with a field and marketplace, who used to saddle the hack as well as handle the billhook. The age of this gentleman of ours was bordering on fifty, he was a party habit, spare, gaunt featured, a very early riser, and a great sportsman. They will have it in his surname, was Quesada, or Quesada, for here there is some difference of opinion among the authors who write on the subject. Although from reasonable conjectures, it seems plain that he was called Quesana. This, however, is but of little importance to our tale. It will be enough not to stray a hair's breadth from the truth in the telling of it. You must know, then, that the above-named gentleman, whenever he was at leisure, which was mostly all the year round, gave himself up to reading books of chivalry with such ardor and avidity that he almost entirely neglected the pursuit of his field sports, and, 
even the management of his property. And to such a pitch did his eagerness and infatuation go, that he sold many an acre of tilled land to buy books of chivalry to read, and brought home as many of them as he could get. But all of there were none he liked so well as those of the famous Feliciano de Silva's composition. For their lucidity of style and complicated conceits were as pearls in his sight, particularly when in his reading he came upon courtships and cartels, where he often found passages like The reason of the unreason with which my reason is afflicted so weakens my reason that with reason I murmur at your beauty. Or again, the high heavens, that of your divinity, divinely fortify you with the stars, render you deserving of the desert your greatness deserves. Over conceits of this sort, the poor gentleman lost his wits and used to lie awake striving to understand them and worm the meaning out of them. What Aristotle himself could not have made out or extracted had he come to life again for that special purpose. He was not at all easy about the wounds which Don Polonius gave and took, because it seemed to him that, great as were the surgeons who had cured him, he must have had his face and body covered all over with seams and scars. He commended, however, the author's way of ending his book with the promise of that interminable adventure. And many a time he was tempted to take up his pen and finish it properly as is there proposed, which no doubt he would have done and made a successful piece of work of it too, had not greater and more absorbing thoughts prevented him. Many an argument did he have with the curate of the village, a learned man, and a graduate of Siguenza, as to which had been the better knight, Palmerin of England, or Amadis of Gaul. Master Nicholas, the village barber, however, used to say that neither of them came up to the knight of Phobus, and if there were any that could compare with him, it was Don Galawar, the brother of Amadis of Gaul, because he had a spirit that was equal to every occasion and was no Finnegan knight, nor lacrimose like his brother. While in the matter of valor, he was not a whit behind him. In short, he became so absorbed in his books that he spent his nights from sunset to sunrise, and his days from dawn to dark, poring over them. And what with little sleep and much reading, his brains got so dry that he lost his wits. His fancy grew full of what he used to read about in his books, enchantments, quarrels, battles, challenges, wounds, wooings, loves, agonies, and all sorts of impossible nonsense. And it so possessed his mind that the whole fabric of invention and fancy he read of it was true. And to him, no history in the world had more reality in it. He used to say the Cid Ruiz Diaz was a very good knight. 
but that he was not to be compared with the knight of the burning sword, who with one backstroke cut in half two fierce and monstrous giants. He thought more of Bernardo del Corpio, because at Roncesvalles he slew Roland in spite of enchantments, availing himself of the artifice of Hercules when he strangled Antaeus the son of Terra in his arms. He approved highly of the giant Morgante, because, although of the giant breed, which is always arrogant and ill-conditioned, he alone was affable and well-bred. But, above all, he admired Rinaldos of Montalban, especially when he saw him sallying forth from his castle and robbing everyone he met. And when beyond the seas he stole that image of Mohammed, which, as his history says, was entirely of gold. To have a bout of kicking at that traitor, Agenlon, he would have given his housekeeper and his niece into that bargain. In short, his wits being quite gone, he hit upon the strangest notion that ever madman in this world hit upon. And that was that he fancied it was right and requisite, as well as for the support of his own honor, as for the service of his country, that he should make a knight-errant of himself, roaming the world over in full armor and on horseback in quest of adventures, and putting into practice himself all that he had read of as being the usual practices of knights-errant, righting every kind of wrong, and exposing himself to peril and danger from which, in the issue, he was to reap eternal renown and fame. Already, the poor man saw himself crowned by the might of his armed emperor of Trebizond, at least, and so, led away by the intense enjoyment he found in these pleasant fancies, he set himself forthwith to put his scheme into execution. The first thing he did was to clean up some armor that had belonged to his great-grandfather and had been lying for ages forgotten in a corner eaten with rust and colored with mildew. He scoured and polished it as best he could, but he perceived one great defect in it, that it had no closed helmet, nothing but a simple morion. This deficiency, however, his ingenuity supplied, for he contrived a kind of half-helmet of pasteboard fitted on to the morion, which looked like a whole one. It is true that, in order to see if it was strong and fit to stand a cut, he drew his sword and gave it a couple of slashes, the first of which undid in an instant what had taken him a week to do. The ease with which he had knocked it to pieces disconcerted him somewhat. In the guard against that danger, he set to work again, fixing bars of iron on the inside till he was satisfied with its strength, and then, not caring to try any more experiments with it, he passed it and adopted it as a helmet of the most perfect construction. He next proceeded to inspect his hack, which, with more quartos than a real, 
and more blemishes than the steed of Gonola, that phantom pellis, best also foolish, surpassed in his eyes the Bucephalus of Alexander, or the Babieca of the Cid. Four days were spent in thinking what name to give him, because, as he said to himself, it was not right that a horse belonging to a knight so famous, and one with such merits of his own, should be without some distinctive name. And he strove to adapt it so as to indicate what he had been before belonging to a knight errant, and what he was then. For it was only reasonable that his master, taking a new character, he should get a new name, and that it should be a distinguished and full-sounding one, befitting the new order and calling he was about to follow. And so, after having composed, struck out, rejected, added to, unmade, and remade a multitude of names out of his memory and fancy, he decided upon calling him Rocinante, a name to his thinking, lofty, sonorous, and significant of his condition as a hack before he became what he was now, the first and foremost of all the hacks in the world. Having got a name for his horse so much to his taste, he was anxious to get one for himself, and he was eight days more pondering over this point, until at last he made his mind to call himself Don Quixote, whence, as has already been said, the authors of this voracious history have inferred that his name must have been beyond a doubt Quixada, and not Quesada, as others would have called it. Recollecting, however, that the valiant Amadis was not content to call himself curtly Amadis and nothing more, but added the name of his kingdom and country to make it famous by calling himself Amadis of Gaul. He, like a good knight, resolved to add on the name of his and to style himself Don Quixote of La Mancha, whereby he considered he described accurately his origin and country, and did honor to it in taking his surname from it. So then, his armor being furbished, his morion turned into a helmet, his hack christened, and he himself confirmed, he came to the conclusion that nothing more was needed now but to look out for a lady to be in love with, for a knight errant without love was like a tree without leaves or fruit, or a body without a soul. As he said to himself, if for my sins or by my good fortune I come across some giant hereabouts, a common occurrence with knights errant, and overthrow him in one onslaught, or cleave him asunder to the waist, or in short, vanquish and subdue him, would not be well to have someone I may send him to as a present, that he may come in and fall on his knees before my sweet lady, and in a humble, submissive voice say, I am the giant Caracumliambro, lord of the island of Melandramia, vanquished in single combat 
by the never-sufficiently extolled knight Don Quixote of La Mancha, who has commanded me to present myself before your grace. Let your highness dispose of me at your pleasure. Oh, our good gentleman enjoyed the delivery of this speech, especially when he had thought of someone to call his lady. There was, so the story goes, in a village near his own, a very good-looking farm girl, with whom he had been at one time in love. Though, so far is known, she never knew it, nor gave a thought to the matter. Her name was Aldonza Lorenzo, and upon her he thought fit to confer the title of Lady of His Thoughts. And after some search for a name which should not be out of harmony with her own, and should suggest and indicate that of a princess and a great lady, he decided upon calling her Dulcinea del Tobaso, she being of El Tobaso, a name to his mind, musical, uncommon, and significant, like all those he had already bestowed upon himself and the things belonging to him. Chapter 2 Which treats of the first sally the ingenious Don Quixote made from home. These preliminaries settled. He did not care to put off any longer the execution of his design, urged on to it by the thought of all the world was losing by his delay seeing what wrongs he intended to right, grievances to redress, injustices to repair, abuses to remove, and duties to discharge. So, without giving notice of his intention to anyone, and without anybody seeing him, one morning before the dawning of the day, which was one of the hottest of the month of July, he donned his suit of armor, mounted Rocinante with his patched-up helmet, braced his buckler, took his lance, and by the back door of the yard sallied forth upon the plain in the highest contentment and satisfaction at seeing with what ease he had made a beginning with his grand purpose. But scarcely did he find himself upon the open plain when a terrible thought struck him one all but enough to make him abandon the enterprise at the very outset. It occurred to him that he had not been dubbed a knight, and that according to the law of chivalry, he neither could nor ought to bear arms against any knight, and that even if he had, still he ought, as a novice knight, to wear white armor, without a device upon the shield until his prowess had earned one. These reflections made him waver in his purpose, but his crave being stronger than any reasoning, he made up his mind to have himself dubbed a knight by the first one he came across, following the example of others in the same case, as he had read in the books that brought him to this pass. As for white armor, he resolved, on the first opportunity, to scour his until it was whiter than an ermine, and so comforting himself this way, he pursued, taking that which his horse chose, for in this he believed lay the essence of adventurers. Thus setting out, our new-fledged adventurer paced along, talking to himself and saying, 
Who knows but that in time to come, when the voracious history of my famous deeds is made known, the sage who writes it, when he has to set forth my first sally in the early morning, will do it after this fashion. Scarce had the rubicund Apollo spread over the face of the broad, spacious earth the golden threads of his bright hair. Scarce had the little birds of painted plumage attuned their notes to hail with dulcet and mellifluous harmony coming out of the rosy dawn that, deserting the soft couch of her jealous spouse, was appearing to mortals at the gates and balconies of the Manchegan horizon when the renowned knight Don Quixote of La Mancha, quitting the lazy down, mounted his celebrated steed Rocinante and began to traverse the ancient and famous Campo del Montiel, which in fact he was actually traversing. Happy the age, happy the time, he continued, in which shall be made known my deeds of fame, worthy to be molded in brass, carved in marble, limed in pictures, from a memorial forever. And thou, O sage magician, whoever thou art, to whom it shall fall to be the chronicler of this wondrous history, forget not, I entreat thee, my good Rocinante, the constant companions of my ways and wanderings. Presently he broke out again, as if he were love-stricken in earnest. O princess Dulcinea, lady of this captive heart, a grievous wrong hast thou done me to drive forth with a scorn, and with inexorable obduracy banish me from the presence of thy beauty. O lady, deign to hold in remembrance this heart, thy vassal, that thus in anguish pines for love of thee. So he went on stringing together these and other absurdities, all in the style of those his books had taught him imitating their language as well as he could. And all the while, he rode so slowly, and the sun mounted so rapidly and with such fervor, that it was enough to melt his brains, if he had any. Nearly all day he traveled, without anything remarkable happening to him, at which he was in despair, for he was anxious to encounter someone at once upon whom to try the might of his strong arm. Writers there are who say the first adventure he met was with that of Puerto Lapis. Others say it was that of the windmills. But what I have ascertained on this point, and what I have found written in the annals of La Mancha, is that he was on the road all day, and towards nightfall his hack and he found themselves dead tired and hungry. Looking all around to see if he could discover any castle or shepherd's shanty, where he might refresh himself and relieve his sore wants. Eventually, he perceived not far out of his road an inn, which was as welcome as a star guiding him to the portals, if not the palaces, of his redemption. And quickening his pace, he reached it just as night was settling in. At the door were standing two young women, girls of the district, as they call them, on their way to Seville with some carriers who changed to halt that night in the inn. And as happened what might to our adventurer, everything he saw or imagined seemed to him to be and to happen after the fashion 
of what he had read. And the moment he saw the inn, he pictured himself, it as a castle, with its four turrets and pinnacles of shining silver, not forgetting the drawbridge and moat and all the belongings usually ascribed to castles of the sort. To this inn, which to him seemed a castle, he advanced, and at a short distance from it he checked Rocinante, hoping that some dwarf would show himself upon the battlements, and by sound of trumpet give notice that a knight was approaching the castle. But, seeing as they were slow about it, and that Rocinante was in a hurry to reach the stable, he made for the inn door. There he perceived the two damsels who were standing, and who seemed to him to be two fair maidens, or lovely ladies, taking their ease at the castle gate. At this moment, it so happened that a swineherd, who was going through the stubbles collecting a drove of pigs, for without any apology, that is what they are called, gave a blast of his horn to bring them together, and forthwith it seemed to Don Quixote to be what he was expecting, the signal of some dwarf announcing his arrival. And so, with prodigious satisfaction, he rode up to the inn and to the ladies, who, seeing a man of this sort, approaching in full armor, with lance and buckler, were turning in dismay into the inn, when Don Quixote, guessing their fear by their flight, raising his pasteboard visor, disclosed the dry, dusty visage, and with a courteous bearing and gentle voice, he addressed them. Your ladyships need not fly or fear any rudeness, for that it belongs not to the order of knighthood which I profess to offer to anyone, much less to high-born maidens as your appearance proclaims you to be. The girls were looking at him and straining their eyes to make out the features which the clumsy visor obscured. But when they heard themselves called maidens, a thing so much out of their line, they could not restrain their laughter, which made Don Quixote wax indignant and say, Modesty becomes the fair, and moreover laughter that is little cause is great silliness. This, however, I say not to pain or anger you, for my desire is none other than to serve you. The incomprehensible language and the uncompromising looks of our cavalier only increased the lady's laughter, and that increased his irritation. And matters might have gone further if, at that moment, the landlord had not come out. The landlord, being a very fat man, was also a very peaceful one. He, seeing this grotesque figure clad in armor that did not match any more than a saddle, bridle, lance, buckler, or corselet, was not at all indisposed to join the damsels in their manifestations of amusement. But, in truth, standing in awe of such a complicated armament, he thought it best to speak him fairly, so he said, Signor Caballero, if your worship wants lodging, baiting the bed, for there is not one in the inn, there is plenty of everything else here. Don Quixote, observing the respectful bearing of the alcade of the fortress, for so innkeeper and inn seemed in his eyes, made the answer. Sir Castellan, for me 
anything will suffice. For my armor is my only wear, my only rest, the fray. The host fancied he called him Castion, because he took him for a worthy of Castile, although he was in fact an Andalusian, and one from the strand of San Lucar, as crafty a thief as Caucus, and as full of tricks as a student or a page. In that case, said he, your bed is on the flinty rock, your sleep to watch always, and if so, you may dismount and safely reckon upon any quantity of sleeplessness under this roof for a twelfth month, not to say for a single night. So saying, he advanced all the stirrup for Don Quixote, who got down with great difficulty and exertion, for he had not broken his fast all day, and then charged the host to take great care of his horse, as he was the best bit of flesh that ever ate bread in this world. The landlord eyed him over, but did not find him as good as Don Quixote said, nor even half as good. And putting him up in the stable, he returned to see what might be wanted by his guest, whom the damsels, who had by this time made their peace with him, were now relieving him of his armor. They had taken off his breastplate and backpiece, and they neither knew nor saw how to open his gorget or remove his makeshift helmet for he had fastened it with green ribbons, which, as there was no untying the knots, required to be cut. This, however, he would by not any means consent to, so he remained all evening with his helmet on, the drollest and oddest figure that can be imagined, and, while they were removing his armor, taking the baggages who were about it for ladies of high degree belonging to the castle, he said to them with great sprightliness, Oh, never, surely, was there a knight, so served by hand of dame, as served was he Don Quixote height, when from his town he came, with maidens waiting on himself, princess on his hack of Rocinante, for that lady's mine is my horse's name, and Don Quixote of La Mancha is my own, for though I had no intention of declaring myself until my achievements in your service and honor had made me known the necessity of adapting that old ballad of Lancelot to the present occasion has given you the knowledge of my name altogether prematurely. A time, however, will come for your ladyships to command and me to obey, and then the might of my arm will show my desire to serve you. The girls, who were not used to hearing rhetoric of this sort, had nothing to say in reply. They only asked him if he wanted anything to eat. I would gladly eat a bit of something, said Don Quixote, for I feel it would come very seasonably. The day happened to be a Friday, and in the whole inn there was nothing but some pieces of the fish they call in Castile, Abadejo, in Andalusia, Bacayal, and in some place, Curadiel, and in others, Troutlet. So they asked him if he thought he could eat Troutlet, for there was no other fish to give him. If there be Troutlets enough, said Don Quixote, they will be the same as a trout. 
for it is all one to me whether I am given eight reels in small change, or a piece of eight. Moreover, it may be that these trowlets are like veal, which is better than beef, or kid, which is better than goat. But whatever it be, let it come quickly, for the burden and pressure of arms cannot be borne without support to the inside. They laid a table for him at the door of the inn for the sake of the air, and the hosts brought him a portion of ill-soaked and worse-cooked stockfish, and a piece of bread as black and moldy as his own armor. But a laughable sight it was to see him eating, for having his helmet on and the beaver up, he could not with his hands put anything into his mouth, unless someone else placed it there. And this service one of the ladies rendered him. But give him anything to drink was impossible, or it would have been so had not the landlord bored a reed, and putting one end in his mouth, poured the wine into him through the other, all which he bore with patience, rather than sever the ribbons of his helmet. While this was going on, there came up to the inn a salgelder, who, as he approached, sounded his reed pipe four or five times, and thereby completely convinced Don Quixote that he was in some famous castle, and that they were regaling him with music, and that the stockfish was trout, the bread the whitest, the wenches, ladies, and the landlord, the castellan of the castle. Then consequently, he held that his enterprise and Sally had been to some purpose. But it still distressed him to think that he had not been dubbed tonight, for it was plain to him he could not lawfully engage in any adventure without first receiving the order of knighthood. Chapter 3 Wherein is related the droll way in which Don Quixote had himself dubbed a knight. Harassed by this reflection, he made haste with his scanty pothouse supper, and having finished it, called the landlord and shutting himself into the stable with him, fell on his knees before saying, From the spot, arise not, valiant knight, until your courtesy grants me the boon I seek, one that will redound to your praise and the benefit of the human race. The landlord, seeing his guests at his feet and hearing the speech of this kind, stood staring at him in bewilderment, not knowing what to do or say, and entreating him to rise, but all to no purpose until he had agreed to grant the boon demanded of him. I looked for no less, my lord, from your high magnificence, replied Don Quixote, and I have to tell you that the boon I have asked, and your liberality has granted, is that you shall dub me knight tomorrow, and that tonight I shall watch my arms in the chapel of this your castle. Thus tomorrow, as I have said, will be accomplished what I so much desire, enabling me lawfully to roam through all the four quarters of the world, seeking adventures on behalf of those in distress, as is the duty of chivalry and of knights errant like myself, whose ambition is directed to such deeds. The landlord, who, as has been mentioned, was something of a wag, 
and had already some suspicion of his guest's want of wits, was quite convinced of it on hearing talk of this kind from him, and to make sport for the night, he determined to fall in with his humor. So the landlord told him he was quite right in pursuing the object he had in view, and that such a motive was natural and becoming in cavaliers as distinguished as he seemed, and his gallant bearing showed him to be, and that he himself in his younger days had followed the same honorable calling, roaming in quest of adventures in various parts of the world, among the curing grounds of Malaga, the Isles of Riaran, the precinct of Seville, the little market of Segovia, the Oliveira of Valencia, the Redondia of Granada, the Strand of St. Nucar, the Colt of Cordova, the Taverns of Toledo, and divers other quarters, where he had proved the nimbleness of his feet and the lightness of his fingers, doing many wrongs, cheating many windows, ruining maids, swindling miners, and, in short, bringing himself under the notice of almost every tribunal and court of justice in Spain, until at last he had retired to this castle of his, where he was living upon his property and upon that of others, and where he received all knights errant of whatever rank or condition they might be, all for the great love he bore them, and that they might share their substance with him in return for his benevolence. He told them, moreover, that in this castle of his there was now chapel in which he could watch his armor, as it had been pulled down in order to be rebuilt, but that, in a case of necessity it might, he knew, be watched anywhere, and he might watch it that night in the courtyard of the castle, and in the morning, God willing, the requisite ceremonies might be performed so as to have him dubbed a knight, and so thoroughly dubbed that nobody could be more so. He asked if he had any money with him, to which Don Quixote replied he had not a farthing, as in the histories of knights errant, he had never read of any of them carrying anything. On this point, the landlord told him he was mistaken, for, though not recorded in the histories, because in the author's opinion, there was no need to mention anything so obvious and necessary as money clean shirts. It was not to be supposed, therefore, that they did not carry money, and he might regard it as a certain and established that all knights errant, about whom there were so many full and unimpeachable books, carried well-furnished purses in case of emergencies, and likewise carried shirts and a little box of ointment to cure the wounds they received. For in those plains and deserts, they engaged in combat and came out wounded. It was not always that there was someone to cure them, unless indeed they had for a friend some sage magician to succor them at once by fetching through the air upon a cloud some damsel or dwarf with a vial of water of such virtue that by tasting one drop of it they were cured of their hurts and wounds in an instant and left a sound as if they had not received any damage whatsoever. But in case this should not occur, the knights of old took care to see that their squires were provided with money 
and other requisites, such as lint and ointments for healing purposes. And when it happened that knights had no squires, which was rarely and seldom the case, they themselves carried everything in cunning saddlebags that were hardly seen on the horse's crew, as if it were something else of more importance, because, unless for some such reason, carrying saddlebags was not very favorably regarded among knights errant. He therefore advised him, and as his godson so soon to be, he might even command him, never from that time forth, to travel without money and the usual requirements, and he would find the advantage of them when he least expected it. Don Quixote promised to follow his advice scrupulously, and it was arranged forthwith that he should watch his armor in a large yard at one side of the inn. So, collecting it all together, Don Quixote placed it on a trough that stood by the side of a well. Embracing his buckler on his arm, he grasped his lance and began with a stately air to march up and down in front of the trough. And as he began his march, night began to fall. The landlord told all the people who were there in the inn about the craze of this guest, the watching of the armor, and the dubbing ceremony he contemplated. Full of wonder at so strange a form of madness, they flocked to see it from a distance. They observed with what composure he sometimes paced up and down, or sometimes, leaning on his lance, gazed on his armor without taking his eyes off it for ever so long. And as the night closed in with a light from the moon so brilliant that it might vie with his that lent it, everything the novice knight did was plainly seen by all. Meanwhile, one of the carriers who were in the inn thought fit to water his team, and it was necessary to remove Don Quixote's armor as it lay on the trough. But he, seeing the other approach, hailed him in a loud voice. O oh, thou, whoever thou art, rash knight that comest to lay hands on the armor of the most valorous errant that ever girt on sword, have a care what thou dost. Touch it not unless thou wouldst lay down thy life as the penalty of thy rashness. The carrier gave no heed to these words, and he would have done better to heed them if he had been heedful of his health. But, seizing it by the straps, instead, flung the armor some distance from him. Seeing this, Don Quixote raised his eyes to heaven, and fixing his thoughts, apparently, upon his lady, Dulcinea, exclaimed, Aid me, lady mine, in this, the first encounter that presents itself to this breast which thou holdest in subjection. Let not thy favor and protection fail me in this first jeopardy. And with these words and others to the same purpose, dropping his buckler, he lifted his lance with both hands, and with it smote such a blow on the carrier's head that he stretched him on the ground. So stunned that had he followed it up with a second, there would have been no need for a surgeon to cure him. This done, he picked up his armor and returned to his beat with the same serenity as before. Shortly after this, another, not knowing what had happened, for the carrier still lay senseless, 
came with the same object of giving water to his mules, and was proceeding to remove the armor in order to clear the trough, when Don Quixote, without uttering a word or employing aid from anyone, once more dropped his buckler, and once more lifted his lance, and without actually breaking the second carrier's head into pieces, made more than three of it, for he had laid it open in four. At the noise, all the people of the inn ran to that spot, and among them the landlord. Seeing this, Don Quixote braced his buckler on his arm, and with his hand on his sword exclaimed, O Lady of Beauty, strength and support of my faint heart, it is time for thee to turn the eyes of thy greatness on this thy captive knight, on the brink of so mighty an adventure. By this he felt himself so inspired that he would not have flinched if all the carriers in the world had assailed him. The comrades of the wounded perceiving the plight they were in began from a distance to shower stones on Don Quixote, who screened himself as best he could with his buckler, not daring to quit the trough and leave his armor unprotected. The landlord shouted to them to leave him alone, for he had already told them that he was mad, and as a madman, he would not be held accountable even if he killed them all. Still louder shouted Don Quixote, calling them knaves and traitors, and the lord of the castle, who allowed knights errant to be treated in this fashion, a villain, and a low-born knight whom, had he received the order of knighthood, he would call to account for his treachery. But of you, he cried, base and vile rabble, I make no account. Fling, strike, come on. Do all ye can against me. Ye shall see what the reward of your folly and insolence will be. This he uttered with so much spirit and boldness that he filled his assailants with a terrible fear. And as much for this reason as at the persuasion of the landlord, they left off stoning him. And he allowed them to carry off the wounded. And with the same calmness and composure as before, resumed the watch over his armor. But these freaks of his guest were not much to the liking of the landlord, so he determined to cut matters short and confer upon him at once the unlucky order of knighthood before any further misadventure should occur. So, going up to him, he apologized for the rudeness which, without his knowledge, had been offered to him by these low people, who, however, had been well punished for their audacity. As he had already told him, he said, there was no chapel in the castle, nor was it needed for what remained to be done. For as he understood the ceremonial of the order, the whole point of being dubbed a knight lay in the accolade and in the slap on the shoulder, and that could be administered in the middle of a field, and that he had now done all that was needful as to watching the armor for all the requirements were satisfied by a watch of two hours only, while he had been more than four about it. Don Quixote believed all, and told him he stood there ready to obey him, and to make an end of it with as much dispatch as possible, for, if he were attacked again, and felt himself to be dubbed knight, he would not, he thought, leave a soul alive in the castle except such as, out of respect, he might spare at his bidding. Thus warned and menaced, 
The Castellan forthwith brought out a book in which he used to enter the straw and barley he served out to the carriers, and with a lad carrying a candle end, and the two damsels already mentioned, he returned to where Don Quixote stood and bade him to kneel down. Then, reading from his account book, as if he were repeating some devout prayer, in the middle of his delivery, he raised his hand and gave him a sturdy blow on the neck, and then, with his own sword, a smart slap on the shoulder, all the while muttering between his teeth as if he was saying his prayers. Having done this, he directed one of the ladies to gird on his sword, which she did with great self-possession and gravity, and not a little was required to prevent a burst of laughter at each stage in the ceremony, but what they had already seen of the novice knight's prowess kept their laughter within bounds. On girding him with the sword, the worthy lady said to him, May God make your worship a very fortunate knight, and grant you success in battle. Don Quixote asked her name, in order that he might, from that time forward, know to whom he was beholden for the favor he had received, as he meant to confer upon her some portion of the honor he acquired by the might of his arm. She answered with great humility that she was La Tolosa, and that she was the daughter of a cobbler in Toledo, who lived in the stalls of Sancho Villanueva, and that, wherever she might be, she would serve and esteem him as her lord. Don Quixote said in reply that she would do him a favor if, thenceforward, she assumed the Don and called herself Donna Tolosa. She promised she would, and then the other buckled on his spur, and with her he followed almost the same conversation as with the Lady of the Sword. He asked her name, and she said it was La Monera, and that she was the daughter of a respectable miller of Antiquera, and of her likewise Don Quixote requested she would adopt the Don, and call herself Donna Moinera, making offers to her further services and favors, having thus, with hot haste and speed, brought to a conclusion these never-till-now-seen ceremonies. Don Quixote was on thorns till he saw himself on horseback, sallying forth in quest of adventures, and saddling Rocinante at once he mounted, and embracing his host. As he returned for thanks for his kindness in knighting him, he addressed him in language so extraordinary that it is impossible to convey an idea of it, or to report it. The landlord, to get him out of the inn, replied with no less rhetoric, though with shorter words, and, without calling upon him to pay the reckoning, let him go with a god speed. And this, my darling, ends our story time for today. As always, I hope that you have very sweet and creepy dreams.